Well, let's ask God for his help, and then uh, we'll turn to our little uh, book of Jude again this morning. Uh, Father, we're uh, so grateful for Jesus and the hope that we have in him. Uh, only sinners are excited about and happy in Jesus. Uh, others see no reason why he would matter or why he would be important. And so I want to say thank you for revealing in me the, uh, not just that I'm a sinner, but the magnitude of my sin for it. Therein lies the delight in the glory of Jesus Christ, our great and only hope. And I would pray for any that might be here this morning who don't know Jesus, Lord, who might be watching online. I pray that you would open their hearts to see that Jesus didn't just come to seek and save um, lost people, but that they're lost because of sinfulness. And that the bad news has to settle deep in our souls before the good news sounds good. And maybe today, this would be the day for the salvation of some who are listening and watching. And for the rest of us who know Christ, we pray for the delight of our souls to be in Christ because we know what's true about us even if no one else does and therein lies our hope as the song uh, reminded us not just our hope for today but our hope for tomorrow as well as we look into the word this morning we pray that <clears throat> you would open our eyes to see uh, both the, your glory and the threat of the enemy. And to be reminded that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. To be reminded that the Holy Spirit's power is far superior and far greater than Satan's power who seeks to uh, steal, kill, and destroy. Who seeks to um, spread mayhem in the body of Christ in the church. And who seeks to defame you and undermine your uh, beauty and your glory that we might see you as somehow tainted, tarnished, evil. And, and so we, we rest in the surety that you are bigger, you are stronger, and you are good. So that as we do battle with the enemy, the outcome is not in doubt. Speak to us this morning. Uh, through the Spirit and through the Word, in Jesus' name, amen. I find the little book of Jude, the end of your Bibles, right before the book of Revelation. <clears throat> if I were to ask you how many uh, insurrections have taken place in what we now know as the United States of America, how many would you say? So in the last 245 years, revolts against the government. Okay, we're going to do history. We should do history, right? This is one of the, one of the cries and complaints about people these days, like, kids don't know history. I'm like, yeah, adults don't know history either. Uh, but there's a lot of history, really, that I think 
even if you're a history buff like I am, that we don't know stuff that's buried here and there. And, and I came across something recently. It was really fascinating. It's called the Green Corn Rebellion. The Green Corn Rebellion happened in 1917 during World War I. And it happened, uh, this is an insurrection of, in the most unlikely of places, Oklahoma, the heartland of America. And what was happening, you had a lot of tenant farmers living in Oklahoma, and they were being exploited in unbelievable ways. Their, their existence was horrific in so many ways. Uh, exploited by bankers, exploited by the buyers of their agricultural products and so forth. And so uh, the people of Oklahoma were, were uh, ripe to be influenced by a German-born socialist organizer who was out of New Orleans by the name of Oscar Meringer. And he, at the invitation of some, went to, uh, went to uh, Oklahoma and began to teach them socialistic principles, Marxism. Of course, socialism's all the rage today, conversations about socialism and are we moving toward a socialism state and what's going to happen and all that. Well, this is not, it's not new news today. This has been around for, for a long time. And so uh, they, the work was effective. In fact, by 1914, they, they think they had... A, probably in the neighborhood of 20,000 members of what was called the WCU, or the Working Class uh, Union. And they organized, and they, they voted, and they boycotted, and they filed lawsuits. In fact, by 1914, they had placed uh, members in key positions in townships, in Seminole County. In fact, they even had seven, uh, six members of the state legislature who were members of the WCU. And there was conversation back then, like there is now, about the dangers of socialism, and people were growing uh, more and more concerned about this. And especially the illegal activities of the WCU, which included night riding, uh, blowing up farm implements, burning barns, not exactly nice stuff. And their intent was to ultimately overthrow capitalism and, since this is World War, uh, during World War I, oh, resist the draft. And the plan was to do this. They're going to rout all the law and order forces in Oklahoma. They're going to march on Washington. They're going to overthrow the government there. They're going to put an end to the war and implement a socialist commonwealth. Remember, this is a over 100 years ago, 1917. Well, things began. A man who was a leader in the WCU uh, came to a group of men who had gathered one night and said, the, the revolt has started. So-and-so uh, and so-and-so -and -so just killed the sheriff and the deputy, and so get, get ready. And so four, over 400 men mustered on what was known as Spears Ridge in Oklahoma, getting ready for the revolt. There were telegraph lines cut and telephone lines cut. Um, they, they burned uh, and dynamited some bridges and some railroad trussles, and they awaited the signal that they're to march on Washington. Now, you might wonder, why would 400 men think that they could overthrow the United States government? It was because their leaders had told them, when they march on Washington, D.C., a, a, an army of two million working men will rise and join them so that by the time they get to D.C., they're an unstoppable army. The reason this is called the Green 
corn uh, rebellion was because the plan was the way they're going to sustain themselves on the march from Oklahoma to D.C. is in unripened corn. This is early August. So these men are waiting on Spears Ridge for the signal to march toward Washington. Meanwhile, the news about this revolt had spread like wildfire in the, in the county. And within 24 hours, the sh- local sheriffs had raised a small army of 1,000 men to protect the towns, to protect their homes, as well as to form posses to go after these men. Now, the men who were waiting on Spears Ridge had declared that they were ready to shed blood. But when the posses arrived and they saw the faces of many of their neighbors in them, they lost heart. Some fled, others simply laid down their weapons and surrendered. And that was the end of the Green Corn Rebellion. 458 men were arrested and 86 went to prison for terms of one year to 10 years. And not just any prison, but the notorious Leavenworth prison. Now I tell you this story to remind you that there is a cost to rebellion. Now you might say, oh, almost 250 years ago we had a rebellion here. And it seemed to have turned out pretty well. The rebellion I'm talking about this morning is not the revolt against King George with all of his flaws, with all of his foibles, but rather a revolt against God, a rebellion against God. We started this mini-series last week on the little book of Jude entitled Wolf Proof Your Church and Your Life. Wolf Proof Your Church and Your Life. And I kind of called you last week to Think about your responsibility in this church to keep the Keystone Church directed toward the Lord Jesus Christ for years and decades to come. And not just count, just count on the staff, not just count on the elders, but that you take a responsibility for that yourself. And the picture that we're reading about in Jude is one that's of great concern. Jude started writing, out, writing this letter it was going to be a positive letter. It was going to be a letter talking about the good things in Jesus Christ. And instead, he issues this report that's of great concern to him, how these people have wormed their way into the churches. They're fraudulent Christians, and they're having greater and greater impact in the church. And so today we're going to read verses 5, 6, and 7. This is just a little uh, one-chapter book. And Jude says this, So I want to remind you, By the way, throughout the scriptures, you're going to see the words remind and remember over and over and over and over and over and over again. And probably if you've come to this church long enough or you keep coming to it long enough, you'll start to put two and two together. Wait a minute. These folks say the same things over and over. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that we don't do the, you know, kind of the Uh, touchy-feely, make-yourself-feel-good kinds of sermons for five weeks and to move on to the latest, greatest thing that's in the newspaper. It's because you and I are consistently being attempted to be reshaped by the world, to think how the world does, to live how the world does, to, to value the things that the world does. And we need the reminders and the repetition and the remembering again and again and again because if we don't do that, 
our hearts will begin to be steered over to the calling that is so pre, uh, pre, preeminent in our culture. Again and again and again, we are hearing just in the television commercials that we, just in the things that we see on YouTube, we are being shaped and molded by things that really aren't the kinds of things that God wants to conform us to. And so he reminds, he says, I remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of their authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Now, if you were here last week, you may have heard me at the very end of the message talk about four um, battles, if you will, that the church is already engaged in and I think will continue to be engaged in in the coming years, at least in the next 10 years. And probably those battles will set the, uh, lay the groundwork for future battles. I, we talked about the uniqueness of Christ, that increasingly there are those who profess Christ that say, uh, they're really, uh, Christ is my way to be reconciled with God, but you might have a different way, or this person in this country might have a different way, or this person of this religion might have a different way. That's one battle to be fought. The nature of humanity, we talked about the whole uh, uh, onslaught against the idea that God has created male and female, Genesis 1, and that now those two are interchangeable. And so we see it in marriage, we see it in the whole transgender movement and so forth. Uh, we talked about the reliability of Scripture. That's been a battle that's going, been ongoing for probably 60 years. And then we talked about the question of judgment. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The question that is increasingly being asked by people who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ is, is, is there any real eternal hell for rebels? Is there any eternal hell for rebels? And increasingly, Christians are saying, God is a God of love, therefore he would not create hell or send anyone to hell or allow them to go to hell. And this morning, instead of looking at a lot of texts that make the declaration there is a hell and here's how awful it is, and by the way, just so you know, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else does in the Bible, which is enlightening. I want to ask the question behind the question, is there a hell? And that question this morning is, does God judge? Does God judge? Is he a judging God? Because the argument is repeatedly being made today that God is a God of love. It's interesting, when I mentor people, uh, one of the first questions I ask them is, tell me what you believe about God. Tell me what you know about God. What's he like? And invariably, the first response I get is that God is, can you guess? Love. And that's true. God is love. But that's not the only truth about God, is it? We would say God is merciful, right? We would say God is just. 
God is wise. God is patient. And God is also wrathful. And God is also jealous for his own namesake. God is zealous for his glory. God is good. God is faithful. God is righteous. On and on and on. But the, the, the pinnacle of who God is, the Bible does not start by teaching us God is love, even though he is. The Bible starts by teaching us that God is holy. And for 1,500 years, God taught the nation of Israel that he was holy. Every time they brought a lamb, a bull, a goat to be sacrificed. God is holy that when his holiness is defamed, Blood must be shed. Does God judge anyone? My first point, the God who justifies or saves. The God who justifies also judges. Now, how how many of you uh, got to read Rob Bell's book? Came out 10 years ago, uh, Love Wins. How many of you have read that? Just a handful of you. Okay, Rob Bell uh, put this issue or this question about God does he judge on the front burner with his best-selling book Love Wins. He was an evangelical pastor in Michigan and he raised the question and really the whole book is simply raising the question but it's really inescapable to conclude that he believes that everyone will ultimately be saved. Six months later he left his church, he went to Hollywood, he, he does all kinds of uh, interesting things now. Not sure he would say he's a Christian anymore but one of the questions that he asked in his book was does God get what God wants does God get what God wants now the reason that it's important to ask that question is uh, I'm going to start with this question this morning does God want people to be saved do you think God wants people to be saved Okay, audience participations. How many of you think God wants people to be saved? Oh, that's encouraging. Okay, let's, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This is really a companion book to Jude. There are a number of things that the Apostle Peter echoes in his little letter that Jude writes about, in fact, in some ways verbatim. Chapter 2, uh, verse 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 9. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. He's talking about the promise that Jesus is going to come back one day from heaven. So he says, even though he hasn't come yet, he's not being slow about his promise. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. God desires that all would repent. And the Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says the exact same thing. God desires that all would be saved, that all would come to, to faith. And so Rob Bell's conclusion from that would be, well, if God wants everyone to be saved, then everyone will be saved. But there, there, there's, there's a condition, so to speak. Does God require anything? To be saved. If you want to be saved and you're not, does God require anything of you? Now, 
If you and I were to get some of our neighbors together who don't know Christ, so we're, to get, we're going to get uh, uh, some of our colleagues at work or some of our classmates, uh, maybe some relatives. I was just with relatives recently that I don't think they know the Lord. If we would ask them, what does God require? What do you think their answer might be? Just call it out. What do you think might be an answer you would hear? Good works, sure. Good works, or if you're, be a good person. God requires uh, me to be good. And, and frankly, some people, you know, they don't want anything to do with Jesus because they're not, they're not sure they want that kind of pressure. But this would be the way many people who don't know Christ would think about God. This is, he requires goodness, and I can't be good by the way, that's something that we're going to run into when we talk to people about Jesus more often than you think, is they feel like the bar is so high that they could never measure up and they don't even want to make a run at it. And that's when you get to share the wonderful news. No, somebody was good enough for you already, took the blame for you already. So scripture tells us something different, though, than our friends might respond. Jesus was asked this question in John chapter 6, verse uh, 28. He was asked the question by the people standing in front of him. Uh, we want to do the works that God requires. What are the works that God requires? And they're waiting to get a grocery list. Do this, do this, do this, stop doing this, don't do this, don't do this. And this is the answer that Jesus gave them in verse 29. The only work that God requires is this. That you Put faith in the one that God has sent. Jesus is pointing to himself. You put faith in the one that God has sent. This is, this is the only work that God requires. I mean, isn't that stunning when you think about it? That we step before the, the almighty universe creator, the me creator, and we, we, we go before him and he says, what do you got to show for yourself? And we're like, Jesus. Jesus, <laughs> I've got nothing to show for me, but I've trusted in Christ. And the Father says, that's it. That's all you need. In fact, the Bible says, the word that Jesus uses in there is believe. That same word is used, trust, have faith in throughout the scriptures. We live in kind of a... Um, philosophically detached age in which all kinds of people can have all kinds of beliefs in things that their actions do not mirror you understand what i'm saying so we, we call that intellectual belief i i believe something i believe it really strongly would you die for it well no i don't want to go that far do you do you believe this sure i believe that are, are you willing to uh, uh put your money behind it no i don't want to go that far are you willing to give up something for it? No, I don't want to go that far. That's not what the Bible speaks about when it speaks about faith, belief, trust in. It's a faith that produces something. But it's the faith that's the key. It, the only thing that God requires is faith. And the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. What God is looking for is faith, 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 faith. I trust, 
I put my faith in Jesus Christ to forgive me, to make me right with God because God has a, 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 a grocery list of, of problems that he has with me, that he has against me, and he will punish me for that except if I have faith in Jesus Christ, unless I have faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself said, without that faith, that God, his Father, will judge. John chapter 3, verse 18. I think we touched on this a couple of weeks ago. We love verse 16, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, so forth. And then Jesus says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, in Jesus, trusts him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. Now, Jude, in his letter, says, I want to give you some examples of God's judgment from the past. And he goes down through three of them. The Israelites, when they came up out of Egypt. Uh, angels, when they rebelled against God. And then Sodom and Gomorrah. The Israelites came up out of Egypt. God rescued them uh, out of slavery in Egypt. And, and then he takes them to the land of Canaan. He's going to give them this amazing land. They send 12 spies in. And you remember what happened? Ten of them came back with bad reviews. No likes. They came back and said, it's a great place, but we have a problem. There's giants in the land and fortified cities, and we don't have a prayer if we go into Canaan. Joshua and Caleb said, don't listen to these guys. The Lord our God will give us the land. He's the one who's saying this is going to be the, our land and the land, land for future generations. And God said, and of course the, the ten convinced the other people, that we sh man, we can't go, we should just go back to Egypt. And God said, fine. If that's the lack of faith you have in me, then we're going to stay here in the wilderness for the next 20 years, and you're all going to die. This generation is going to die, and you're not going to get to see Canaan. The next generation will go into the land. And that's what happened. By the way, did you see something fascinating in verse 5? So he's talking about an event that takes place 1,500 years before Jesus comes on the scene in Bethlehem. And yet he says, um, Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt. Wait, what? Jesus, 1,500 years before he's born, is rescuing the nation of Israel. Of Israel from Egypt? Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Same thing. Talking about Israel in the wilderness, verses 3 and 4. All of the Israelites ate the same spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual water. They drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And that rock was Christ. <laughs> that rock was Christ. Verse 9, same thing. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did, those Israelites, and then died from snake bites. What's going on here? Jesus, Jesus, the man, began in Bethlehem. Christ, the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of God, did not. He has no beginning. He has always existed with the Father. He's one of the three that the Father's looking at. In Genesis 1, looks at it says, Hey, let's us make 
man in our own image. Remember that? That's us. Make man in our own image. John chapter 1. The the son was back there with the father at the beginning, creating everything. He had no beginning, just like the father has no beginning. It's this beautiful picture of of the Lord Jesus Christ active down through all of history. So God judges the Israelites because they were unfaithful to him. They didn't trust him. They didn't put their faith in him. Oh, and then the angels also, they are judged because they rebelled against God. I don't, the, 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 the picture of the revolution in heaven against God is a, a bit sketchy throughout Scripture. We have portions of it here and there and there. We don't exactly know when it took place but apparently took place sometime before um, the garden because we see Satan showing up and tempting Adam and Eve the scripture suggests a third of the angels that God had created revolted with Satan and what was what was their objective well Isaiah 14 tells us about that in a poetic description it doesn't really show or, or maybe I should, that's not the right word, doesn't really designate that this is about Satan, but it seems clear that it is. Verse 12, Isaiah 14, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. If you have an older translation, that's where Lucifer shows up. You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world, for you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven. I'll set my throne above God's stars. I'll preside on the mountains of the God and far away to, in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Rebellion has a cost. And Satan and his angels got thrown out of heaven, thrown down to earth, And God is simply awaiting to execute his final judgment on them. I don't know what this picture of demons in chains is all about. We know that some demons are active in the world. We know that maybe maybe not experientially, but certainly while Jesus was here, we see all kinds of evidence of him casting out demons. There's no reason to think that they aren't active today in the world, but their power is diminished compared to God's power and the day is coming when God is going to do what he planned to do with these angels all along. Matthew chapter 25 talks about hell being prepared for the devil and his angels. Because God's judged the Israelites, Jude says, he's judged the angels and he's judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember those names? Remember those cities? Genesis chapter 19, Abraham's nephew Lot had gone to live in these cities I think there were seven of them on the plains and very very wicked very wicked and two angels came one night to tell Lot he better get out of town because God has heard about how awful these uh, cities are and he's going to destroy them you need to leave and you need to leave now Now, the angels didn't appear with white, fluffy wings and so forth. They looked like men. They're out in the square. Lot finds them there, and his Middle Eastern hospitality wouldn't let them stay the night out there. He says, come to stay to my home. And do you remember what happened? They're in his home that night, and the Bible says that all of the men, young and old, from around the city 
came, surrounded their house, and they're beating on the door of Lot, saying, send those two men, send those two strangers out that we don't know we want to have sex with them. And by the way, it's interesting, some gay apologists today who try to argue that God approves of gay relationships will take you to Ezekiel chapter 16, I believe it is, where it says that the sin of Sodom was prosperity, pride, and the unwillingness to share their good fortune with the poor and the needy. And so they say, but that, so that means that Sodom wasn't judged for the, um, the sexual uh, promiscuity that was depicted that night, but they had bigger issues. And yet here we are, Jude says, don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. They serve as a warning The literal fire that fell from heaven and destroyed all of those cities and incinerated everyone in them is a reminder, Jude says, that there is such a thing as God's judgment and it will be horrific. Horrific. Now, one of the sympathies that I have for Rob Bell is a sympathy I have had for others who have abandoned biblical teaching on this. I followed Rob's career to some degree. I was a pastor. I think he started when I was also a pastor in Michigan. And uh, he became very, very popular. But he was a very effective evangelist. Very effective, both from the pulpit and one-on-one. And I wonder how many of us, as we've shared the gospel with people, we've told them about the wonder and the glory of Christ and how much God has loved us by giving us Christ. And they've, re- they've said no to the gospel. And then we have to say, you have to understand that there's a price to saying no to this good news. Who wants to tell anybody about hell? Who wants to talk about the horrors of judgment? And this, I think, was one of the things that drove Rob to change his point of view. And I get that. But we can't, pre- we can't act as if there are no casualties of dismantling what the Bible says about God's judgment. And let me just hit three quickly. These are, I'm calling these the casualties of pretending, of pretending that the Bible doesn't speak of God's ultimate judgment. The first one is truth. That's obvious. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 32, and pretending shall set you free. Is that what he says? What's going to set you free? Truth. The truth will set you free. In fact, in that very same chapter, Jesus is talking with the people, and he, in a few short verses, says to them, look, 
you folks out here, you're resisting, you're rebelling, you're revolting. You need to understand that your father is not God. Your father is the devil who is the father of lies. And he has been lying from the beginning. Why did he say that? Remember what took place in Genesis chapter 3? When the devil had asked, excuse me, the devil had asked Eve, did did God say you can't have fruit from any of the trees here, these beautiful trees, that you're not allowed to have fruit from them? No, that's not what he said. He said if we eat fruit from that tree, we'll die. You won't die. God's, God's a liar. That's what Satan's saying. God's a liar. And make no mistake about it, that's what's behind the move to extract God from his judgment. God's a liar. Or the testimony that's been left about God is lying. And yet Jesus says it's the, it's the truth that sets us free. Never let anyone tell you that the truth will enslave you. It is the truth that delivers you. And let, let's be honest. There are, things, there are things that God says in this book that are hard. I've shared before, I, when I'm, and I'm doing this right now, when I work my way through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, I'm usually doing it on my knees. And I'm calling out to God and saying, God, how could, you, how could you either call for this or how could you let this happen? There's things I don't understand. There's things I wish God hadn't done. I wish God isn't doing but it's the truth that sets us free and in this matter of judgment there's another casualty that if we pretend that God doesn't judge and that's the urgency of witness the urgency of witness mission to the ends of the earth gets shelved If there is no judgment, why in the world would we send people, risk their lives, uh, you know, spend their lives in a place where where they know no one, it's all different culture, it's different language, and people may not even want them to be there. They raise their children in that. Their children end up coming back to the States when they're in college and and they, they, they don't get it. They're not sure if they're a citizen of this country or a citizen of this country. Why would we ask anybody to do all that if everyone gets saved? There is a reason why liberal churches that have abandoned the authority of the word of God don't have missionaries around the world. They have social workers that are digging wells and delivering medicines and doing good deeds, but they're not evangelizing. They're not planting churches. Why? They don't believe that God's going to judge. They believe that everyone's going to make it. The urgency of witness is a casualty of concluding that God doesn't judge. Mission to my circle, my circles, the people that I'm going to be with over the holidays that are related to me, the folks that I bump into uh, maybe at Walmart or, or in some other context where I bump into people and I, on a plane, they don't know Jesus. I'm like, it's okay. We replace that urgency. This, this person needs to know about my Savior. That urgency gets replaced by parties and smiling faces. Right? If there is no judgment, 
And the last casualty is worship. And maybe we should have put that one first. Worship. Do you worship? Do I worship the God as he is? That's described in the Bible. Or the God that I would like him to be? Look at Revelation 16. This is, to me, this is one of the most striking passages in all Revelation. And there's many of them. This is during the bold judgments. And in the middle of those judgments, awful things are taking place. They, uh, they, They have poured, these angels have poured out horrible, malignant sores on everybody on the earth who's rejecting God. And then they're pouring a bowl into the sea. The sea turns to blood, and then the rivers and springs also turn to blood. And this is what the angel says in verse 5. It's a, it's, it's a prayer. It's an acclamation of worship. You are just, O Holy One, who is and who always was because you have sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets... You have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. And if we decide that God does not judge, we worship a false God. And our worship is false. In the introduction to Rob Bell's book, he writes, I've written this book for all those everywhere who have heard some version of the Jesus story that caused their pulse rate to rise, their stomach to churn, and their heart to utter those resolute words, I would never be a part of that. In other words, this is my interpretation, he has tamed the gospel so that it is palatable to anyone. And in doing so, he has destroyed the gospel. We're going to close with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning of verse 7. In the middle of this verse, it says, He will come, speaking about Jesus, He will come with His mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. Sometimes you hear that Jesus is like the 2.0 version of His Father. He's a kinder, gentler version, improved version. God was mean-spirited. God the Father was mean-spirited. Jesus shows on the scene and says, Father, let me take care of it from here. Bad cop, good cop. That's not the testimony of Scripture. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished. This should grieve us. This should make us weep because we're surrounded by people who need Jesus, who are lost. 
We should pray like Noi does. God, give us a heart for the lost. Give me a heart for the lost. Give me, break my heart for the lost. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. Who should we believe? We have the same choice, the exact same choice to make that Adam and Eve had to make in the garden. Will we believe God's testimony? Or will we believe that lying, destructive, spellbinding, low life who wanted to make his throne appear like the most high who will we believe and make no mistake about it that's a question that we will have to re-answer time and time and time again throughout our lives who do I believe and who do I trust Father, we pray for those that we know <clears throat> who do not know. We pray for those around the world that we don't know who do not know. We pray for a, that you would captivate the church of Jesus Christ, your people, with a, a concern for, a heart for, a love for those who are currently the targets of your wrath. That we would both know and feel the reality of your impending judgment. That you would help us overcome our innate fears and insecurities and uncertainties about talking to people about Jesus. And, and that you would guard us against being willing to dismiss your judgment in order to make it a more palatable gospel. Guard us against the folly. And may we continue to listen, listen, listen to you and stand for your truth in Jesus' name.